It's time for Real Ag Radio on Rural Radio Channel 147 on Sirius XM. Radio and RealEggCulture.com is your home for insight and analysis of the issues that are impacting your farm business. Let's get real and get connected with Real Ag Radio. Hello and welcome to this Friday edition of the Real Ag Radio show. I am your host, Lindsay Smith, and yes, it is Friday. It is September 1st. It is pumpkin spice season. I'm just kidding. That's not till after Labor Day. Um, but it is the issues panel and the beef market update today. So I am super pumped for today's show. I also wanted to mention, yes, this is a full two weeks that I've been hosting the show, save for the Monday show that Kelvin did, uh, which I appreciate very much. And I have absolutely loved doing this show for two weeks. It is so much fun to think about uh, the story ideas, things to cover, who to have on the show. Uh, and so I hope you've enjoyed it. Sean will be back next week on Wednesday. Monday, of course, is the holiday. Tuesday, I'll be back with Tuesdays with Lindsay. Uh, but then your regular host, Sean Haney, will be back in the driver's seat on Wednesday. So um, any feedback, of course, zip me an email, lsmith at realagriculture.com. You can find me on social media at reallouddlindsay. That's L-Y-N-D S-E-Y, because my mother couldn't spell. Um, or you can, of course, just find Real Agriculture online, realagriculture.com, or, of course, across social media at Real Agriculture. Okay, as mentioned, Ann Wasco will be on the show today to talk beef markets. Um, and uh, I, I'm going to ask her about the cow herd because I'm a little concerned, and I bet some of you are too. And then for the issues panel, I will have my colleague, Kelvin Hepner on, as well as Stuart Person with MNP. He's based out of Alberta. We've got some significant questions about uh, agri-stability, interest rates, inflation, recession, and water wars, if you will. So we are going to be talking about all of that over the issues panel. Uh, so stick around all the way to the end. We've got some good stuff lined up. Can't wait to hear what the panel has to say about that. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned, Tuesday, I will be back with Tuesdays with Lindsay. And uh, yeah, we head into that best time of the year. That's right. Back to school. I'm so pumped. Um, I desperately would like my house back during the day. All right. Let's, uh, let's take a quick break. I will come back. I'll be joined by Ann Wasco of the Gateway Livestock Exchange for the Beef Market Update right after this. This is the sound of a farmer with a clear view of their fields and finances. As is this. And this. Crop planning, profit reports, budget, cash flow statements, all laid out clearly with Ag Expert. To view from inside the combine or in the field, projecting what's next. Get valuable perspective anywhere you are. Ag Expert, farm management software built for Canadian farms. Visit agexpert.ca to get started today. What were the issues in your fields this year? Did you do a soil sample? What is your soil sample telling you about some of the nutrient issues that you might be having going into next year? What herbicides did you use? What residues might you might be concerned about? What weed issues did you have? What crop residues did you have? How well do you know your fields? Get the answers to all the questions you have about your pulse crop at the Pulse School on realagriculture.com. 
Introducing the all-new Zerion 12 Series Tractor by Kloss. Redesigned from the ground up to redefine the high-capacity four-wheel drive market with 653 max horsepower, industry-leading hydraulic flow, a silky smooth CVT, a powerful TerraTrack undercarriage, and a quiet, comfortable cab with 20% more legroom. More than just power. The all-new Zerion by Kloss. Real Egg Radio here on this Friday, September 1st. This segment is brought to you by the pre-emergent soil active herbicides Felterra EZ and Fierce EZ from New Farm. Get ahead of hard-to-kill weeds. Spray this fall for up to eight weeks of extended weed control next spring. Find out more about New Farm products at newfarm.ca. All right, joining me now, it's Ann Wasco. It is time for the Beef Market Update. Ann, how are you? I am good. Lindsay, you've done a done a big fill-in for a couple of weeks. Good for you. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, you know, praise is, is welcome. It has been, it, it is a lot of fun to host the show, but it is a lot of work. So hats off to Sean Haney for doing this every day, all year. Um, yeah, two weeks in a row in in late August uh, with, with some of the kids still home because, you know, school doesn't start till next week. It's been a challenge. Let's put it that way. Um but uh, we can do hard things, Anne. We can do hard things. Okay, yeah, let's. We can. Uh, we can. Let's talk beef markets as per usual. Let's start in the U.S. and work our way north. Yeah. So markets this week in the U.S. Um, a little bit mixed uh, in the in the south. I'd say most of the trade at one seventy nine, which will be for the most part steady. In the north, though, a little bit of weakness showing up there. Uh, one to three lower on the live one eighty two to one eighty four while the draft market was off a couple to 290 delivered. So a little mixed, no, no big surprise. The market still, for the most part, you know, sideways uh, chop on the, on the weighted average, the five-area average. The cutout this week, you know, it had a nice uh, improvement up to the middle of the month, you know, leading into Labor Day. But now that all, most of that business is done uh, in terms of buying for that long weekend for the retailers, the choice did lose about four bucks this week. It closed last night at three thirteen eighty, and uh, the select still sitting about twenty five dollars back. So again, none of those I think are surprises. Now, once we roll into September, um, especially you know, kind of a month from now, we'll be looking for these markets to okay, time to start to shine for Q four, but you can take your breather now. That's how I'd maybe define it. Um, here in the West, just to finish up on markets, our, our local cash market in Alberta, 390 delivery, that's up two bucks, and a little bit of live trade at 231. So kind of a little firmer fitting, footing to finish off August here in the West. All right. And now, as you, as you said, sort of, you know, expected numbers, but looking through this month for things to start to pick up. Is this typically, is September typically a lull kind of month on these prices? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, t- totally. So yeah. um, now we take our little pr- reprieve until we get into Q4 where we have some great demand for uh, usually for middle meat. So yes, they're going to be high priced this year. You know what kind of response happens as we go forward. But certainly we know supplies are going to be on the, on the tighter side as we head into Q4. So looking for that to support the market. And uh, that's how we, those are the things we'll be watching to see how things play out. Okay. All right. We did get some StatScan data for the July 1 numbers. What did those tell us? Yeah. So this is that mid-year inventory report. Um, if your listeners remember, we talked about the U.S. report a little bit ago. StatScan released theirs now. 
So this is July 1 cattle inventory report. And as expected, liquidation in Canada continued through the first half of 2023. No surprise. And of course, since this report, you know, droughts certainly intensifying, especially in parts of Western Canada where the cow herd lives. So my, my, uh, maybe warning or kind of a heads up to, to listeners is that I think, um, we'll see even more so of a response by the time we get around to the next report on January 1st, 2024. But in the meantime, Time. This report showed nationally our beef cow numbers down one and a half percent. If you go back and look at um, even just since 2020, they're down three and a half percent. And in the past 10 years, they've dropped seven percent. So no, no surprise. We know what the cow herd's been doing in Canada. And that continued on this last report. Now, the piece of the puzzle that we watch to say, when will something change? Change is, of course, has to come from the heifer side, right? Mm-hmm. So beef replacement heifers were down 3% versus last year. They're now t- down 12% from 2020. Wow. So again, there's no, absolutely no signs of any retention going on. And until that piece changes, there is, you know, we've got no hope of seeing a bigger, a bigger herd. So, you know, the, the, the writing's on the wall, if you will. Now, the one piece that if you're a cow-calf producer in this country that, you know, you're going to continue, I think, to see strong support on uh, on feeder cattle and calf prices is our beef um, calf crop down 3% uh, versus last year, down 6% from, from 2020. And this will be the smallest calf, beef calf crop that in recent history, like for over 30 years. So that's going to keep, um, that, that tells that supply story, especially on the feeder side. And I think um, that's that's the bottom line as we kind of sum up this report. Yeesh. So, and of course, prices are good, which is the time when you want to have lots of calves to sell. But this is this is how things go, isn't it? When you have a you know cattle take a cow or a heifer when she's born, she's not giving you a calf for a couple of years, and then that calf doesn't go to market for for eighteen months or so. It's a long process or a long supply chain, right? So changes, of course, happen over time. We can't also just immediately change gears. Um, Everything happens over time. So so watching that that heifer replacement piece, did the cattle on feed numbers tell us more about just how many heifers are going to town? Good point. Good point, Lindsay. And so for sure, this is uh, something we can watch each month because Canfax re- reports a cattle on feed report here in Western Canada. So let's just go back and look at, say, for example, in June and July, um, that Western Canadian heifer placement. So this is heifers going on feed. We're up 50, 50% from 2022. Even compared to the drought, what we call the drought year of 21, they were up 25%. So already, and, and none of this would have been reflected in that stats can report yet. Um, the other, so again, clearly, you know, indicating what's going on here in Western Canada in terms of heifers are heading on feed. They are not mm-hmm. staying in the, in the herd. And then the other piece, I think, you know, just to kind of round out the cattle on feed numbers is um, cow fodder. Mm-hmm. So nationally, we saw June and July cow slaughter here in Canada up 2% for both months. The preliminary data, and we've got another month or a week to finish for this month, but it looks like August data could be up 16%. So again, all of these things will impact the January 2024 report. Mm-hmm. So when there's two things happening here, right? There's no feed 
Um, and this is, yeah. yeah, there was an improvement, let's say, in some areas over 21 for sure. Uh, but perhaps some areas this year have sort of slid back. Um, definitely. So we've got not a lot of feed and prices are quite strong. Where's the business case for keeping heifers? There isn't one. So. Yeah, like, I mean, every, everybody's going to be different. And yeah, exactly. You just illustrated there's areas that have had, you know, some moisture and have had some grass and areas that haven't. So, yeah. I mean, it, this is as uh, varied and different as uh, as you would expect across the country. So, mm-hmm. um, but having said all that, there's certainly, um, you've got record high prices occurring. It doesn't look like that that that, that train is, is stopping at all as we head into the fall run and head into 2024. So again, uh, I guess if you're being forced to to liquidate cattle, you know what? Thank goodness we've got record prices to mm-hmm. to handle that. Yeah, yeah, but definitely some questions about what the next five years, ten years, fifteen years looks like uh, for this uh, cattle herd for sure. Okay, uh, let's round off on carcass weights. Of course, tell us a few things. Where are we at on carcass weights as far as up, down, the same, uh, west and east? Yeah, so yeah, good good catch as well. We're always watching to say, you know, are our feedlots current? How we how we doing? Have we got a chance to, you know, rally this market some more? And I think this kind of helped or is showing in this local Western Canadian market with that higher price we saw this week. Bottom line, I think, is uh, in Western Canada, feedlots are pretty current. Um, overall, nationally, our weights are on steer weights last week were 920 pounds. That's four pounds below last year. But what the bottom line is, Western Canadian weights are down, but Ontario weights are creeping heavier. So an indication, kind of a, just a, a warning sign, I would say, just watching those weights in Western Can- or in Eastern Canada that are inching higher and maybe feedlots not quite as current in, in Ontario as they are, say, in Alberta. Mm-hmm. All right, something to watch for sure. All right, Ann Wasco joining us from East End, Saskatchewan. I hope you have a wonderful long weekend and get some of that uh, beef sizzling on the barbecue. You got it. You too. Thanks, Lindsay. All right. We'll be back with more Real Ag Radio right after this. Did you know that Pioneer now has a full lineup of Enlist E3 soybeans? Take a look at Pioneer brand Enlist E3 soybeans for the highest yield potential and for the best agronomic package and herbicide trade options. From the lab to the field. Pioneer brand Enlist E3 soybeans are the best in beans, period. Ask your local Pioneer representative about Enlist E3 beans. You know, there's a reason we call it the Corn School. Videos on everything from planter setup, weed control, field trial results, yield strategies, and so much more. The Corn School on realagriculture.com has the information and advice you need to help you succeed. Brought to you by Pride Seeds and BSF. Corn School episodes are available at cornschool.com, from realagriculture.com, or as a podcast from your favorite streaming service. Download the latest podcast today. Hi, I'm Bernard Tobin, host of the Soybean School on realagriculture.com. Throughout the year, on the Soybean School, we'll bring you timely agronomic video content from planting to harvest, from the latest agronomic research to the latest in production technology. Check out our massive video library on YouTube, realagriculture.com or download the audio podcast versions wherever you get your podcasts the soybean school is brought to you by pride seeds basf and syngenta canada
Welcome back to Real Ag Radio. I am your host on this Friday, September 1st, if you can believe it, Lindsay Smith. All right. Uh, this segment is brought to you by Low Rate NBT Solutions that claim to protect nitrogen, but no imitator product delivers like Anvol. Nitrogen Stabilizer, the next-gen urease inhibitor from Coke Agronomic Services. See how others stack up to the proven power of Anvol at defendyourn.ca. I don't know who came up with that address, but I won't. All right. It is time for the issues panel. Joining me today from Manitoba, it is Kelvin Hepner with Real Agriculture. Kelvin, how are you? Doing well here, Lindsay. Hard to believe it. Like you said, hard to believe it's September 1st. But uh, with how dry things have been here this summer, the trees are turning color already. So I guess, yeah, fall is around the corner. The end is nigh. But also, you know what that means, Kelvin? I'm not sure. Hockey season is around school. the corner? Back to school. Yeah, no, back to school. <laughs> the most wonderful time yeah, of the year. This, our yes, our kids go back season. next week. I think some... Did Alberta go back this... I'm not sure, but I, our kids have a, a false... I call it a false start to the school year next year or next week, and then uh, it really starts in earnest the following week. Oh, you have like the two days and then... The, yeah, mine's, two days mine's and start interviews and stuff like that. So Yeah, yeah we are actually going to talk a little bit about hockey, but I'm going to bring in our other guest first. Stuart Person with MNP based out of Alberta, joining us from Saskatchewan today. Stuart, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Lindsay. Um, super excited today because I get to take off my uh, MNP hat today and put on my farmer hat and yes. uh, celebrate uh, the Labor Day weekend as I do every year by working. By laboring. By laboring. That's what you get to do. And that is fantastic. So yes, at the farm in Saskatchewan. Uh, so thanks for taking time out of the day. We're going to say, uh, you know, that they need you desperately. So we'll try and get through this as quick as we can. Um, I do want to just very quickly talk about hockey because this week we did see the professional women's hockey league get the original six teams named. And guess what, Kelvin? There's an Ottawa team. There did is. You see a, this? I saw that. Yes. Yes. Six I am teams, super pumped. Six. Yeah. Ottawa. Yeah. I, w- I wish there was one closer this way in Western Canada. I know. But, uh, well, maybe there's the Minnesota, bro. I think, is your closest. Yes. So not in Canada. You'll have to cross the border. Anyway, just a shout out there for everybody. Um, low key, there's like a a pool going around already on my end. So Ottawa, we are we are super excited. Okay. So let's bring it on home, though, for everybody. No one came here for sports talk, although that might be the first sports talk in two weeks. Uh, but let's talk. We'll start uh, on the economic data. We did have the GDP numbers out this morning. Calvin, let's start there. A disappointment is what we're going to call this one. Yeah, not as not as strong as expected. The consensus was that Canada would have seen annualized GDP growth in the second quarter of uh, 1.2% positive. That was the expectation. And the number from StatsCan came in at negative 0.2%. So we actually saw on an, annu- on an annualized basis in the second quarter, we saw uh, the Canadian economy shrink slightly. And so tipping into a recession territory or, or kind of trending in that direction. So certainly with the Bank of Canada interest rate decision coming up next week, this will uh, reduce the odds of them uh, introducing a- another hike. It, it certainly looks like they will uh, likely just hold in their decision next week. Reduce the odds, but doesn't make them disappear entirely. Now, Calvin, and and I should state for the record, there are three of us here. Not one of us is actually an economist. So we're going to speak about these things, of course, from our experience and from what we're thinking. Uh, but nobody take advice for us uh, from us on interest rates, please. But uh, when when are we officially in recession? How many quarters is it? 
Well, it's usually two quarters, I believe. I, I don't know the official. This is something that not everybody agrees on either, but usually if there's right. two quarters of contraction in a row, that's considered a, a recession. And so this would be uh, the first uh, first half of that is uh, is now uh, officially in the books, the, according to uh, yeah. or on the record, according to, to StatsCan and the, the numbers today. So, yeah, certainly not uh, a rosy picture. And this already, uh, the last interest rate hike only took place in late June, I believe. So this would already not have been fully accounting for uh, the latest hikes. So uh, mm-hmm. it, it remains to be seen here in terms of the timing, how quickly the economy is uh, is turning around, how quickly this uh, this ship is, is turning, and whether the Bank of Canada and other central banks can uh, can time this to avoid a recession. That's the big question. Right. They keep telling us they don't want one, but I feel like that's somewhat disingenuous. Well, but again, something have my to break opinion. for it to. Uh, we can't continue the trend that we were on for the last thirty years with near with continually decreasing borrowing right. costs. So some things are going to break in the meantime here. Calvin, you and your facts <laughs> um, and your measured. Measured answers. Okay. Uh, Stuart, that does bring us to uh, interest rates, of course, and all the discussion around it. Uh, we've got a poll out this week on, you know, what would you do? It was my question for the Farmer Rapid Fire yesterday. And, you know, if you had to take out a long-term loan right now, what would you do? Uh, I mean, today you're wearing your farmer hat, but of course, in your line of work, uh, how concerned are farmers about this increased cost of borrowing right now when it comes to running their businesses? Yeah, I think it's a it's a major concern. I mean, uh, you know, with the how fast the rates have gone up and how much they've gone up, um, there's going to be a lot of uh, loans coming up for renewal over the next two to two to three years that uh, we're going to be faced with some tough decisions. I mean, um, you know what what one might think is that we're probably getting near the top uh, based on you know what Kelvin said there. If if we are, maybe these interest rate hikes have achieved the goal and and slowed the economy down we'll we'll maybe see some more uh, or some lower inflation numbers which will um you know hopefully cause that pause to remain or or maybe a, a further reduction in in the future so it's hard to it would be hard i think to to be locking anything in at this point uh thinking that you know we may see reductions coming in in uh, in the future but uh, some of the last reading that i had done on this was that the there was no expected reduction in rates, at least for another year or longer. Um, so I guess it just depends on how, you know, how you want to play that out. The other thing I would just comment on is, you know, even though these rates are you know, feeling like they're a lot higher than they've been, obviously, in the, in the more recent past, um, you know, on the long-term scale, they're still not uh, extremely high, I wouldn't say. Um, and so, you know, if you've, if you've been, uh, cautious with your business planning and haven't been overly aggressive um most operations should be able to handle these rates uh they're still you know historically uh you know in a mid to even in some cases a low range uh, compared to what we saw you know into when you saw double digit interest rates so i think it's just going to one of the things we we do expect to see here is that land prices you know will likely be impacted by this because it just you know the the ability for producers to purchase land at the prices it's been at is going to be a lot harder um going forward with these kind of interest rates it's not going to make the same sense it did when you had a two uh, or three percent interest rate 
I mean, it is true when we look at interest rates. I mean, historically, let's say not, you know, incredibly high. But if we look at, let's say, the last 10 years, especially um, a huge difference. I think one of the things that I hear as well, and I'm glad you brought up land prices because it, it is the, you know, how how do you run the numbers for every sort of large capital purchase, but also just, you know, your your operating loans, these sorts of things that are often variable, um, you know, just servicing that debt does does sting a little for sure. I think what a lot of people are saying though too is that this is also combined with just the higher cost of everything. So it's like, you know, there, yes, historically maybe this isn't the most expensive borrowing ever, but everything costs just so darn much more. Um, you know, everything from our groceries to our fuel to, to all these sorts of things. So, um, definitely I think, you know, did, I guess hindsight will tell us, you know, Yes, this was necessary. These, this increase in rates, was it too fast? Um, do we see them at all pull back? You know, Stuart, I, I will say I don't hear a lot of that reduction talk. Um, and maybe Calvin, you can weigh in on this, but I, we could see these rates sustained for quite some time. It doesn't mean that they have to go down, right, Calvin? Yeah, exactly. And then the longer it lasts, that I think the more impact it will have going back to, to Stuart's comments on, on land values, it, it seems like so far land values have maintained their strength and we haven't seen, I'm not even sure we've seen a plateauing yet. In, in many parts of Canada, I think uh, land prices continue to creep higher and uh, and I, I think a lot of that has to do with just cash on hand and, and people had reserves that they could spend. But as those reserves get drawn down and borrowing costs are, are elevated, uh, it's going to be tougher to uh, maintain the direction in, in the land market. And so that's where I think we'll see softening the longer the longer this rates stay high the more likely we are for a softening in in, la, in the land market whether that's a plateau or whether we actually see a bit of a correction like we did see in some parts of the country back in uh, in the 80s i would note on the on the the debt servicing side of things though lindsay we did see uh, the last of the major canadian banks come out with their quarterly financials this week and cibc has hiked their uh, loan loss provision so this is the the money that the bank sets aside for covering loans that may default a year ago in this quarter they had 243 million dollars set aside for loan loss provisions and uh, this quarter they've set aside almost 750 million so three times roughly uh, the amount of money set aside at CIBC for covering uh, loans that may go bad and and we've seen this same trend with other banks as well and so not not to state anything on on the state of uh, the bank's financials but just overall what that says about the Canadian economy and and where things are headed right now that there is this elevated concern about people uh, defaulting on loans Okay, wait. Was that for the quarter or the year? That's that for the, the quarter? quarter. So that's that doesn't mean that that's what is going to happen. Like often they, no, they set aside this money. On a side, it's kind of their yeah. It's it's their rainy day fund for covering if things go bad. So they do often not use that money, and, and it right. carries forward and and is just been set aside and didn't get used for that purpose. But it's kind of yeah. It's the rainy day fund for the bank, kind of what they have to set aside internally. And, just based on their models, what they expect, how things could play out. Okay. So, A, way to go, bank. That sounds very reasonable and judicious use of money, but also, yikes. Okay. So, yes, definitely an indication of uh, what could be, or it certainly gives us a sense of sort of how the bank is thinking as far as their confidence in some of these loans. So, uh, definitely interesting for sure. Okay. Let's take a quick break. We'll end it there. We'll take a break and we'll be back with the issues panel with Stuart Person and Kevin Hefner right after this.
Does your end stabilizer contain an active ingredient load high enough to be agronomically effective? If not, it could be costing you time and money. If you're putting down a nitrogen stabilizer, put your trust in Coke Agronomic Services. Solutions like SuperU, Tribune, and Anvil. Each delivers high active ingredient concentrations that low-rate products just can't match. Compare how imitator products stack up to agronomically effective solutions at defendyourn.ca. Infuse some energy into your next corporate event, customer meeting, or conference with Real Ag Radio, Canada's national agriculture radio show. Create a unique experience at your next event with host Sean Haney, broadcasting Real Ag Radio live on Sirius XM, featuring exciting guests, captivating interviews, and the latest news from the agriculture community. Contact advertising at realagriculture.com or call 587-787-1795 to book your on-location with Real Ag Radio today. Welcome back to Real Ag Radio here on this Friday. I am your host, Lindsay Smith, and this segment is brought to you by Granubor from U.S. Borax. Ask for it by name. All right, joining me on the line, we have Stuart Person with MMP, but wearing his farmer hat today out of Saskatchewan, and Calvin Hefner with Real Agriculture, who always wears his farmer hat because uh, it's the only hat he's got. Okay, uh, let's talk about, Calvin, you wrote up... Um, some news about the underused housing tax. We have a lot to unpack on this one. So first, remind us what this is, because we did, of course, talk about this a few months ago, uh, but we've also got some producer groups that uh, have put a letter together and sent it to a very familiar name. (laughs) Yes. Last year, the federal government implemented this UHT, underused housing tax. It's meant the intent was to alleviate pressure on the housing supply and to discourage foreign ownership to have these, to make it so that houses and condos in mainly in urban centers of Canada uh, aren't sitting empty just uh, as an investment or a speculative type of investment that they are getting used trying to address the housing crisis. And so the government implemented this 1% annual tax rate on underused housing. And as part of that, there's a requirement that... uh, companies and partnerships that own houses or residential properties have to file this form every year basically saying hey this is this place was lived in for this amount of the year we're not uh, so even if you aren't in a tax position where you owe this UHT you still have to fill out this form every year and so a number of farm groups uh, Canadian Federation of Agriculture the horticulture the fruit and veg groups from across the country Canadian canola growers association cattle feeders uh, a lot of these groups have come together now national groups have come together and written a letter to uh, the new National Revenue Minister, who happens to be the former Ag Minister, Marie-Claude Bibeau. Uh, the letter also had uh, Ag Minister Lawrence McCauley and Finance Minister Christia Freeland's names on it as, as well. And they're asking that farms be exempted from having to file this UHT uh, form this return for each residential property each year. There is a, a fine of up to $5,000 for individuals and $10,000 for corporations for each property that they fail to uh, submit a return on. And of course, in some of these sectors of Canadian agriculture, there's a, a high number of foreign workers. So you need bunk houses and mobile homes and, and residential properties, houses for for people to, to live in part of the year. And so the CRA has kind of tried to exempt some of those situations, but it isn't super clear from what we can tell. And so, yeah, these farm groups sent this letter uh, last week to the ministers, including Minister Bibo, uh, asking for this exemption around the, the UHT. And Stuart can probably speak to this a little bit further in terms of uh, his uh, his line of work and expertise on this. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. If you, if you would, cause there's a few things and thanks for that, Calvin, because of course we heard about this for a bit and then it sort of disappeared. Uh, so there's two things on the steward I want to sort of unpack here is first of all, you know, so this has to be filed every year on every property that's owned. Um, and so I, 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 I'm not sure how much that costs as far as what that, you know, just in the paperwork side. Um, but what impact have you, have you anticipated on this, uh, within the farming community? Well, it's a significant impact on the community, uh, more so though from the administration burden. Um, so specific to the tax itself, what we're seeing is, you know, less than 1% of, of producers that are, or claims that would be, sorry, I should say applications that are being filed are actually triggering any tax. You know, so 99, greater than 99% of producers are not going to pay any tax uh, as a result of this. However, um, the burden of actually filing these forms is not insignificant. There, there is work that needs to go into determining, first of all, if you have to file. And then once, once we determine you do have to file, you know, we need the information that needs to be put onto the forms. Some of the forms are, you know, from what we're seeing, they're written more so for the city. So when you get into things like rural route addresses and different things like that and trying to locate the residents, it's a bit of a challenge right now. Um, we're seeing, uh, a number of, uh, uh, producers, I think are hearing a lot of, of comments from different people that, well, I, I don't, I'm not uh, going to, I don't have to pay the tax. Therefore I'm not worried about it. And that's really dangerous for our farming community because as Calvin mentioned, there's penalties for not filing. So even though you don't trigger tax, if you don't file, you could incur, you know, between five and $10,000 of penalties per year for not filing. So, you know, like there, it's just really unfortunate. I, I don't, I don't know if we understand at this point what the motivation of the government was around the way this was designed. If the motivation was to collect tax, um, it's, it's, uh, odd that we have so many people filing that are not in a taxable position. Um, so I don't know if there's another motivation there or or what exactly the reason is to be forcing so many Canadians uh, to be filing this return when it, you know, wasn't the intent appeared to be to capture uh, foreign uh, individuals owning properties in Canada. The other thing I'll just mention on this is, um, you know, Kelvin mentioned partnerships, corporations, you know, that's where a lot of our farm clients are getting caught, but we have a lot of farmers out there who do estate planning um, for, uh, you know, and in their estate planning, they might put the children on title to a house um, as part of their estate planning. Um, or we might actually have children buying uh, houses or building houses on the farm that's on the parent's land, um, you know, or the parents might even be co-signing loans. And all of those things I just mentioned uh, create a trust uh, situation and trusts are required to file as well under this uh, system. So, you know, it could be as simple as uh, as you co-signing a loan for your child and and therefore having an interest in that property that can trigger a filing requirement, which, you know, your child is building a house to live in and work on the farm. It just really doesn't make a lot of sense. So, um, yeah, a, a couple of things I would point out as... Um, we have a really good article that was written by Brittany Zare um, from our Stratford office. It's in the Ontario Grain Farmer. If anybody gets that publication, have a look at that in the August edition. 
And then uh, if you go to our website at mnp.ca, um, you can just search for UHT and our senior VP of tax, Am Litter, has a great video on it, which talks about farms. She's got a segment in there talking specifically about farms as well being caught uh, by this. So there's lots of good information out there, but it, yeah, it's, it really is a, an unfortunate um, uh situation that it's put the egg industry in and i don't blame the organ the associations for uh, the requests they've made it almost so, it almost seems yeah. backwards to me like it, it almost would discourage say you buy with consolidation of farms you buy land and sometimes there's a an old homestead that comes with it if you're gonna have to bother with this paperwork and potential risk of thousands of dollars in in fines uh you're going to take out maybe if it's an older house that needs some fixing up, uh, maybe we won't fix it up because this is just a headache to deal with another house. And, and right there, you're reducing the housing supply. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and that's just it is that it doesn't to your point, Stuart, like what's the motivation here? Like we know that this was put in place with a, a you know, an urban lens for sure. Uh, but if, if even if 90% of people who file don't have to, but if it's as much as, you know, almost no one actually ends up paying the tax, then what actual difference does it make on the landscape? Um, for sure. But also it makes no difference to the coffers either. So I just, I really, it, it feels like they've just created an administrative nightmare and also with no real benefit, um, really to anyone. Now, I, I just want clarity on one thing, Stuart, and, and Calvin, if, if you know as well, is this is this any individual who owns more than one property or is it limited to corporations or, um, you know, so if your farm isn't incorporated but owns several properties, yes? Like, what is the trigger of whether or not you need to file this form? Yeah, I mean, I mean the... The easy answer to that, Lindsay, or the simple answer is it depends. Oh, gosh. No. <laughs> Which is the typical tax answer that you would get. Right. I mean, you really do have it. I, I would I would caution us all to to be do not try to answer that question um, in a simple term. You yeah. really do need to sit down and take a look at it. I mean, you could think that you're you're fine because you're a Canadian citizen or Canadian resident, and you're you're owning your house personally. Yet, you know what? Somebody's co-signed on a loan, and boom, you're into it, right? So, you know, it just it just it's there's so many little works to to how it it how you're determined as to whether or not you have to file that i would just caution people if you if you own a house you should probably have a look at least in year one and then if nothing changes after that and you've determined that you don't need to file then you're probably good after that right but good advice yeah everybody talk to your accountant just do it. They're nice people. Um, mine is anyway. So there you go. Uh, okay. Just, I mean, good advice though, for sure, is that, and, um, you know, I really think, and I'm, I'm quite hopeful that we see some movement on this, um, that, you know, this isn't the first time, certainly, that we've seen some sort of new rule or new law come out and, uh, it doesn't necessarily in implementation actually make a lot of sense. So let's hope, uh, that, we get some movement on this one for sure. Uh, we've got a lot more to cover and we seem to be very wordy today, everyone. I just want to note actually for the record that to me, UHT is ultra high temp, which is how like cream is treated here. So my creamer for my coffee is ultra high temp milk. Um, so there you go. That's the other egg spin on UHT. Um, all right. Okay. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with our last segment of the issues panel here on Real Egg Radio. 
this year might bankrupt us. If I lose the farm, I'm letting down generations of my family. Why am I the only one who can't handle it? Maybe the farm would be better off without me. Hello? Hey, I was just thinking about you and thought I'd say hi. I know it's been a hard season, and I wanted to see how you're holding up. We might feel alone, but we're all in this together. Visit domore.ag for mental health supports tailored for the agriculture community. Canola is more than just a pretty face in the prairie landscape. It's a big business, both here and around the world, that requires you to be informed and up-to-date on everything it takes to grow a successful crop. The Canola School on realagriculture.com has an expert library of video resources covering markets, agronomy, and more to help you grow a healthy and profitable canola crop. Visit canolaschool.com today. Brought to you by BASF Canada and Invigor High hybrid canola. Welcome back to Real Ag Radio here on Rural Radio Channel 147. I am your host, Lindsay Smith. And do you want true nitrogen protection? Skip imitator products for an agronomically effective solution like Super U, premium fertilizer from Coke Agronomic Services. Super U protects against all three forms of loss and is proven to boost yield potential. See how others stack up at Defend Your N. All right, it is the Issues Panel. Joining me, Calvin Hepner, Stuart Person. We have already covered a lot of ground, but we have... Oh, oh goodness, this is the big one. What is it? Whiskeys for drinking and waters for fighting over. Never has perhaps that been more true as what we're seeing happening in BC right now. We've got full-on water wars. So, uh, Calvin, catch us up. Uh, this was, I think, just two weeks ago. The press, the press release went out uh, that the BC government was making moves to protect water. Uh, but that included turning off irrigation access. Irrigation specifically for forage crops. Uh, the BC government has made the decision effective August 16th that uh, approximately almost 400 license holders in the lower Salmon River and Beset Creek area have to stop using water for forage crops. So, yeah, and this is to uh, protect the the fish populations, the sa- Chinook salmon as they as they move up the river and course uh, there's a lot of controversy as to whether there's scientific basis to actually support this move by the the provincial government as it's quite detrimental now to uh, the forage producers as a lot of the alfalfa and, and hay crops grown for feeding that dairy industry in the Fraser Valley in in southern BC comes from uh, from this area and so if they all of a sudden have to turn the taps off like has had to happen here the last couple of weeks uh, that uh, third cut sounds like it's at risk and so yeah, uh, certainly tensions are high right now in, in this part of BC when it comes to having access to water for uh, for forages. They are So other water uses on in agriculture are still allowed in terms of uh, livestock and, and irrigating uh, or water for uh, vegetable crops, but uh, the f- irrigation of forage crops is, uh, is what uh, the government has decided to restrict here. Now, Stuart, in prepping for today's issues panel, you sent a really fascinating... Uh, short video. Uh, it's about 20 minutes, little documentary uh, that was just put together. It is very recent on exactly this. Um, so pretty fascinating, but a very stark sort of discussion on really a a pretty significant rub between those that are trying to irrigate and the province saying they may not. Yeah. And, you know, you got to really feel for the producers in this situation. Um, if you watch the video, they, you know, these guys have made their plans throughout the year to to grow their crops and they need that irrigation to, to finish what they're doing. Um, 
so you know it, it's changing the the goalposts on them kind of mid mid game right and um you know i guess that you know that's something that uh both uh the producer groups in bc and the bc government need to get some more clarity on going forward because it's really hard to run a business when when things like that are going to happen to you mid-year I think the the one thing that uh, is concerning as well is the government in British Columbia citing that agri stability is theirs for producers to apply uh, for. And when you, if you watch the video, um, you know most of these producers would be indicating that this third crop or the third cut is where all the profit is on their farm. So in this case, I it would be unlikely that agri stability is going to provide any relief um, because it's the profit that they're losing at this point. It's you know, and and maybe it will create some shallow losses for them, but shallow losses are not typically covered by agri stability. So, you know, really there there would need to be a different an ad hoc program of some sort to compensate them for the impact this is going to have because you know these producers are are going to watch their profit. Uh, go out the window here uh, and it's going to put them some of them into a loss maybe some of them into break even um agri-spillity is not designed to assist in that specific instance so and you bring up a really good point is that and let's face it not everybody will claim to understand these programs inside and out so i am very glad that you're here that to sort of lay out some of what we know and what you know maybe is up for debate but you know a provincial government essentially relying on a federal program that without, I think this seems like they, they don't truly understand it um, also doesn't necessarily pass a smell test, I guess is what I'm saying is that this is an induced, uh, you know, turning off of the taps that, that they've decided to do. And one of the things that uh, we should point out is that for, at, at least according to this documentary, most of this water is being pulled out of aquifers, not out of rivers. Um, and the farmers that are highlighted within it um, have showcased the technology they're using to try and minimize the amount of water they're using. But exactly that, it is well into the season. Um, and they make the point, and I'm glad that they do this, to tie it into food production. Uh, because, of course, as Calvin, as you said, the water... The tap has stayed on for vegetable production and, of course, yes, to water livestock, um, but not necessarily to water the forage crop that's going to feed those livestock. So uh, these producers, of course, are saying, yes, we may be forage producers, but that becomes your milk and your cheese and your, you know, these sorts of things. So a really interesting one there, but it does beg the question about the role of programs in in something like this, in something like water wars. And, and this, yes, is related to irrigation, uh, but not the first time we've certainly heard that, you know, agri-stability is not necessarily a disaster relief. That's, we've got something like agri-recovery for that. Uh, but earlier this week, we did hear uh, from Tara Mulhern-Davidson out of Saskatchewan, um, who's been in a drought situation for several years. And, and you know, she stated that agri-stability has not worked for her. Is Stuart, obviously, you don't know her entire um, history, and I wouldn't expect you to comment on that specifically. But what are some of the factors that work into agri-stability that means it may not actually pay out even in years of drought? Yeah, I mean, I, I did listen to the interview on Tuesday and um, I mean, there's just a number of factors that, that would go into trying to assess that situation. Um, the, the interesting part with uh, with cattle ranching is, you know, when you do have a drought, generally that means they're into a situation where they're purchasing feed and so the question becomes, well, did the purchase of that feed, did it, did it 
did it reduce the profit that the farm made or did it throw them into a loss? Right. And, and that's the key, just, just as I discussed on the BC situation, if it, if it's just a reduction of profit, then we wouldn't expect agri-stability to kick in. But if it throws them into a loss situation, then that's where agri-stability will start to, to trigger. And it can't just be a shallow loss. It has to be a deeper loss uh, before you're going to start to see uh, funding from agri-stability in the cattle ranching sector. So I think that's where some of the confusion comes in uh, with producers as they say, well, I normally make you know, a hundred thousand dollar a year profit for my farm. I'm now making a $10,000 profit because of the drought. They're looking at it saying, well, I lost $90,000. Well, you, yeah, your, your net income is down 90,000, but the program hasn't been designed to protect a profit. It's been designed to help uh, protect against losses. And so that's one of the misconceptions we see out there when we're, we're talking with producers I think another one in the cattle industry is there tends to be a lot of ad hoc payments that will go out because of droughts. And we're hearing that, you know, with, with agri recovery and, and other, you know, per head payments going out. A lot of times those payments are allowable income for the agri stability program. So when you go to file your return, you have to include those payments in your income, which could then throw you outside of an agri stability payment. And it's almost in some ways an advance on your agri stability um, so had you not got that ad hoc payment, you might have got an agri stability payment, but because you got the ad hoc payment, you you don't get an agri stability payment. So um, that's another one. Um, and then the other one I want to point out for what uh, uh, Tara, it was Tara, right? Yes, yeah, Tara. Yeah, what, what Tara was talking about there is the multiple bad years in a row is a real problem for the agri stability program because we use the Olympic average, which is, you know, we drop the high and we drop the low on a five-year basis and we go with the three years in the middle. When you've got many bad years in a row, it really, uh, it really makes the agri stability program much less effective. And, and so one of the issues there that the government has, you know, defended that on in the past is is that they're looking to see a long-term our industries sustainably sustainable businesses and you know i think they were they were you know had good intentions there of of saying well we're not gonna be supporting an industry that never makes money but in the case of these prolonged droughts and and or prolonged wet periods you can't you wouldn't say that a cattle business is never going to make money you wouldn't say that a grain business is never going to make money these are you know, some anomalies that are going on. So it is one of the changes that should be looked at for agri-stability is how do you deal with extended uh, periods of drought or extended periods of, of weather disaster? And how do you therefore uh, deal with the fact that agri-stability is going, the margin for agri-stability is going to be depleted and therefore payments are, are going to dry up um, way too soon in, in that case. A couple, couple of other things in the ice. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going on. This is here, but fascinating I'm, stuff. I really appreciate this. So no, keep rambling, Stuart. A couple of other things I'll just mention on agri-stability overall. Um, you know, just some, some, some challenges that are out there. Again, we need more education on how this program actually works uh, and what it was intended for. And I think the more we can get that in place, uh, the, the better the industry itself will understand what its purpose is and then we'll understand, okay, if it's not meeting the needs, why and what else do we need or how do we need to improve the program? So that's number one. I talked about the depleted margins is an issue already uh, where we need to look at extended drought periods. 
The third one is payment caps at $3 million. This, you know, our farms are continuing to consolidate. We have a number of farms in Canada that uh, the $3 million cap is just way too low uh, for these days. I mean, you know, and these are still family farms. They're not multinational corporations. These are family farms that a $3 million cap is just too low. Uh, for for our, uh, us to be using. And then the other piece, again, is if we're going to go to government and say, look, the program is not sufficient, we need to be having deeper discussions around the trigger point and the funded amount uh, level to say, look, you know, here's why this, this trigger point or this funded level needs to be higher, because it doesn't it's it's not protecting the viability of our farm operations. So just changing the narrative on how we talk to government on this, I think would make a huge difference, but we need to go in with facts and we need to go in, uh, you know, with evidence of, of why. Mm-hmm. Calvin, I'll, I'll sort of end it there on the discussion of, you know, this is a program that has been up for discussion. Do you see that there's room in the months ahead to have that kind of discussion on these programs? Hmm. I, it's tough to make. We, we saw the last tweaks that they made to agri-stability last year. Uh, it took them years to get to that point in terms of the federal-provincial negotiations and, and ministers coming to the, the table there. I I don't see uh, a whole lot of revamping happening happening quickly here. Some of the things like changing that uh, that $3 million cap, that could be done quite, quite easily, probably, with the, the stroke of a pen. But yeah, I, I this whole BRM business risk management suite of programs, it, it takes a long time to make changes, it seems. Mm, if any at all. All right. We are out of time, but this has been absolutely fascinating. Stuart, thank you so much for joining me on the show today and happy farming this weekend. Right, thanks, Lindsay. Have a great all weekend. Right. All right. And Calvin, you too. Thank you. Everyone else as well. All right, and I will be back. Monday's show is a replay because of Labor Day, but I'll be back on Tuesday with Tuesdays with Lindsay right here on Real Ag Radio. Cheers, everybody.